Welcome to Rector's Cupboard, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith. We ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation. There's an interesting documentary on Netflix. Well, there's a number, but the one I'm thinking about, I think it's called The Last Blockbuster. And it talks about blockbuster video and the very last one, which is in a small town in Oregon. It plays, it's interesting that it's on Netflix because Netflix maybe was part of killing blockbuster. When I was a kid, you spent your Friday night or your Saturday night when I was a young adult going to the video store and standing in front of a wall and selecting a video and you hope they had it in and all that kind of stuff and you had late fees and everything else. And now there are no more blockbusters. Uh, The Bible never said that the gates of hell would not prevail against blockbuster, but apparently the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But at times it can seem like we're waiting for the last uh, blockbuster to close. The church in many people's minds is in decline. You may have participated in church Um, quite exhaustively in your past, and now maybe don't go to church at all. What is the church? Who is the church? Does the church have any role in society right now? Uh, What do pastors think about that? What do others think about that? Here at Rector's Cupboard, we were really pleased to be invited to enter into conversation with a friend of ours, David Goa, who is an author and museum curator, um, writer on all kinds of different topics of faith and culture, uh, he's the founder of the Ronning Center for Religion and Public Life, and uh, he's a bit of an Orthodox theologian as well. And so he said, why don't we talk about the church, who the church is, what the church is, and what people have to say. So this series is what has so far come out as a result of that uh, invitation. We speak with a number of people who care about the church and are willing to ask some of those honest questions about where the church is at and what the future looks like for the church in the days ahead. We've got uh, six episodes, I think, seven episodes, and, uh, and we'll be releasing those uh, every couple of days. And so if this is the first time you're listening, if you're listening as they're released, that will be the cadence. We hope you enjoy the conversation. The Church in Between Times, episode two. In this episode, we speak with Nate Collins, the pastor or a pastor at Hillside Baptist Church in North Vancouver. Nathan's reflections on the church moved us towards considerations of some of the common struggles and questions of vocation for pastors. The conversation moved towards the role of the church in the spiritual growth of its adherents. The Reformation has some curious legacies, or at least they strike me as curious. Because the Reformation, protest, protestism, because the protest movement comes out of the Roman Catholic Church at a particularly decadent period in its life, it has often seemed to me that Protestantism was afraid of thinking about certain things for fear that those things might be considered Catholic. So one of them, of course, is marriage. 
Marriage was a sacrament within the Roman Catholic Church. So it's not surprising to me that we got into this struggle around same-sex marriage because there hasn't been a theology of marriage written in the whole history of Protestantism. There have been a few self-help books, (laughs) but nothing substantial. Also, the notion of communion and the Eucharist, of course, fair bit of ink spilled over part of that. But the other one that's particularly striking to me is the ecclesia. What is the church? Who is she? And because the Protestant world also rises at the same time as the nation state, and because it has these unbelievably powerful founders, Martin Luther, my first hero, John Calvin, my first theological enemy, (laughs) the Armenian tradition, my favorite heretics, um, and then, of course, the amazing flowering of various Protestant movements, all of which, in retrospect, strike me as... particular charisms within the Christian family. None of which strike me as having thought a lot about what is the ecclesia. So in any case, I wanted Mm -hmm. to explore this question of who is she and how does she understand herself? And so it's lovely that... um, we have, are able to have these conversations yeah. here in, in Vancouver with various people around this matter. So thank you. And so our this conversation, we're welcoming Nate Collins. Nate is a pastor at Hillside Baptist Church in North Vancouver here on the North Shore, um, but grew up in Seattle. Grew yes. up in Seattle and, <laughs> uh, and, and attended Regent College yeah. here. And then how long have you been in that position at Hillside? Uh, just over two years. It's only two years. Yeah. And you were born in Starbucks, I understand. I was born in Starbucks, in a bathroom in Starbucks. That's right. I thought that was true. Yeah. Yeah. It's true for the, all people who come from Seattle. The right? original Starbucks in yes. Pike Place Market, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. And David will start us off by, you know, asking you something really, you know, interesting. Profound. And yeah. Sounds no, good. No, no, none at all. <laughs> but you went to Regent, and then you also went to Fuller. I did, yeah. And... Um, as a child in my home, we would listen to a number of radio broadcasts, and one of them was, of course, Fuller. Oh, yeah. So uh, I haven't heard that name for years. So thank you for, uh, for raising it into consciousness again. It's uh, a moment of nostalgia for me. At Regent and at Fuller, what did you what did you learn about the ecclesia the church what what did you what did they teach you about the nature of the church or what did you draw from that yeah i think um well one one thing is i i definitely emphasize the the biblical study side of things more than the theology side so i think in my 
systematic theology C class. We we had a thing on the church, I'm sure, but I've forgotten what they taught me in that class. <laughs> but um, I, you know, I was more influenced by by the biblical studies and um, and and particularly at Regent that that uh, often had kind of an N.T. Wright flavor to it. So I think a lot of this is kind of coming, I guess, just to kind of cite my sources or influences. Um, but I think what I came away with uh, from Regent and and to some extent Fuller was um, was kind of the idea that the church is is the people of God, and that there's there's an analogy between the way Israel is the people of God and then and then the way the church becomes the people of God and um, and the new, so the new synagogue, the new chosen people. Um, in a sense, I, I think it would be, um, I mean, people get a little, a little bit picky about how, how, I, how we articulate that. I think, I, I think I would articulate it as, as, well, I just, uh, happened to preach on the vine and the branches in, in John 15 recently. And that's kind of a helpful way to talk about it. Uh, because there's this image of Israel as the vine in the old Testament, as you, as you know, and, uh, in Isaiah uh, five, he talks about his unfruitful vine, and and the problem with that in Isaiah twenty seven, he's he's talking about uh, in the future a, a new fruitful vine, and then Jesus talks about being the true vine, and the branches, and 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 those who uh, remain in Him will bear much fruit. And so I think I think the idea is more that uh, I I guess the phrase that Jesus reconstitutes Israel around Him as He collects these twelve disciples, which are sort of like the twelve patriarchs and so it's it's um it's not necessarily a, a replacement of israel but in the same way that all along israel has has true israel has only been those who are faithfully in covenant with yahweh so now that becomes those who are in relationship with jesus christ and um and so in that sense they are the people of god if that makes sense are there Are there people who are in relationship with Jesus Christ that don't know his name? I don't know. Very possibly. Yeah. It's yeah. hard for me to say. Well, I know, but I wanted to hear what you had to say about that because that's, that's an important thing to, to bear in mind yeah. about how this, um, how this unfolds. Did, through your biblical studies as well, and that lens... What did you What did you come to understand to be the the work of the church, uh, the Opus Dei? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I would like I'd like to, if if you if you care to, uh, have you explore this a little bit, both in terms of what does the church do for the gathered people? What's that work? And what is the purpose of that work? Does that work bear fruit? You use the vine, the fruitfulness of the vine. Does that bear fruit in the life of the world? So on both sides of that, both that kind of internal work as well as what the implications of that are for living the life of the world. Yeah, I think... um here I, I'd probably want to draw some on on Christopher Wright and his his mission of 
God, uh, his book, Mission of God, where he talks about the mission of the church being actually to participate in God's mission on earth, which is, I guess, briefly to kind of um, make creation what he always meant it to be, a place in which humanity is in right relationship with God, right relationship with the rest of creation, right relationship with each other. And um, and so we, we participate in that. Um, I think uh, I think when it comes down to the day to day of the actual church, um, I think that means that individual churches uh, their their mission needs to kind of have two um, two two areas of focus. One would be on the church community itself, and this is I think where I I maybe depart from some of the missional church guys. Um, mm. Because I think I think they tend to emphasize uh, being missional out in the community at the expense of the community, uh, the church community itself, um, to the point where I when I when I read them I sometimes wonder like uh, what exactly are we even inviting people into? Is there actually a community of like a that's worth being a part of that we're drawing people into? Or are we also focused on mm. being out in the community? And and, and I think it is. Mm is central to the mission of the church that we actually be the people of God in the sense that we, you know, as Jesus is my, uh, a new command, I give you love one another as I have loved you. And as he has loved them as washing their feet, dying for them, this, this idea of, of service. And so, um, to my mind, a central part of the mission of the church is actually to be sort of a microcosm of, Mm. of, uh, the kingdom of God with the understanding that, that, when the kingdom fully comes, you know, sin will, I guess, not be a part of that, but, but now it will be. And so we have to find a way to be broken people in community with each other. Um, but then I do think there is also a uh, part of the mission of the church is to um, bring as many other people into the people of God and into relationship with God uh, as we can. I, I think you know, it's a long conversation about what the the best and most effective and most sensitive ways to do that are, but I do think it's central to the church as well. What is worship? <laughs> That's a good question. There you go. Uh, a nice easy one, hey? That's an easy one. I'm, David I like doesn't to give generally softballs. ask easy questions. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's <laughs> good. What is worship? I think... Um, I mean, I think we use the term in different ways, uh, you know, worship proper. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but one way we use the term worship is is specifically in s- kind of saying things to God that, that we think are right and appropriate to say to God. And I think sometimes in the Protestant church, especially we get a pretty narrow idea of what things we ought to be saying to God. Uh, you know, when you compare to say the the Psalms or whatever, which have such a wide variety of mm-hmm. of uh, things that that are prayed to God, some of which make us a little sweaty when we read them. <laughs> think about praying them. Uh, so I think that's one way to think about worship. But I think that um, that one problem in in at least the church that I've experienced is is kind of the separation of of worship from um, from the lives that we live, you know, mm-hmm. Monday to Saturday and Sunday afternoon. Um, and, uh, and I think when you read scripture, you just see that, that our lives are so, so 
tightly tied up with our worship. You know, I think Amos is a great example where the, mm. where the, um, the, the cult of Yahweh seems to be thriving. There's sacrifices going on and there's music and blah, blah, blah. But there's injustice and the, the rich are exploiting the poor. The rich are, are uh, you know, kind of collecting all the land and the resources and the poor are getting poorer. And God says, I hate and I despise your sacrifices and your feasts. And, um, and so I think that, uh, I think that uh, while I would hesitate to say that me, I would hesitate to use the word worship to describe going out and, and caring for the needy, I would say that that is so uh, kind of intimately tied up with, uh, with the concept of worship that you can't, we shouldn't be separating them so much as we do. It's part of a life of worship. Yeah, yeah it's part of a life of worship and um, and that and that that sort of behavior is what makes our worship something that's valuable to God. Uh, so, so I can sing the same song, I can sing it with the same feelings in my heart, but if if Monday to Friday my life mm-hmm. is is one of exploitation and 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 you know amassing privilege for myself, then that gives a very different flavor to my to my worship on on Sunday than if I'm living a life of you know, that's, that's loving the people around me. And your work and familiarity with this kind of question is in, in, uh, in the evangelical church yeah. and being, come, coming from there myself. And the, the question of worship is one that, and so as pastors there, we've, you know, talked about this where are people kind of going after an experience and a feeling, um, yeah. and is this now kind of a consumption model and, and right. you know now we see places that you know you turn the lights down and have a stage yeah. and and where uh the, the the gaze is directed to the stage it's not about the community gathered though there yeah. is a collective yeah. experience that yeah. you know that there is something that it'd be uh, i'm interested in where you in your studies in your own faith in your and maybe now but maybe before um how did church for you cultivate an awareness of the transcendent something that we say is is happening in worship right what about your experience with that yeah um well i guess i guess i'd i'd uh i was actually thinking about this question because it was one that you kind of let me know in advance but i i would like a definition of transcendent what like do you mean something other than or or more than just god Uh, i i i mean an aware uh apart from just the imminent Apart from just you know the here and now, yeah, uh, the things I can see, the things. So those, so you know, the moment for a young person, or maybe not young person, the awareness of something more, something higher. Now, for me in Christian faith, obviously, transcendent takes on on a, a meaning that has a particularity to it. And but so however you want to answer it, in that that kind of outside of this, as Taylor would say, imminent frame. Yeah, the the transcendent. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think, I, I don't know, I think the church, I mean, obviously it deals with the transcendent in a way that, uh, well, I was about to say in a way that much of the secular world doesn't, but I think maybe that's changed as we've gotten mm-hmm. more and more into postmodernism and, and people are more, more open to some sense of the transcendent. Hmm. But it's certainly part of our regular conversation, you know, we're talking about a God we can't see, we're talking about spiritual realities, we're talking about angels, um, Heaven and hell, you know, these are things that are outside the sphere of our our everyday existence, and so in that sense, it's just it's just a part of the everyday vocabulary of the church. I think, 
Um, I think, uh, I do think that, that, you know, as you said, there's the worship culture in the evangelical churches often become about uh, creating a feeling, which yeah. maybe, which is called an awareness of the transcendent. Yeah, but it, but it's not necessarily like, an awareness yeah. of the transcendent. Yeah. You know, like um, I remember, I went to I went to a, a Bible school, a, one of the Torchbearers Bible schools in in Austria for eight week ah. study term, which is a great time. Where was that in Austria? In Schladming. Okay. It's a little okay. town, right. seventy kilometers south uh, southeast of Salzburg. So it's oh, okay. just yeah. right right yeah. in the Alps. Yeah. And uh, anyway, it's a, a really fantastic time for me. But we of course had uh, worship services, and uh, I remember one of them having just this really profound feeling of closeness with God. And uh, and then later at the same worship services, not having the same profound experience of worship with God and really struggling with that. And then, and then, uh, eventually I can't remember if it was at the school or later or something, but realizing like, well, God hasn't gone anywhere. <laughs> like the, it's not as though like now, you know, Why don't I, I get that feeling. Yeah. Anymore, I didn't have God. the feeling. So he's just <laughs> gone or he, he's mad at me. Like, no, it's, or you failed. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think, uh, it's hard to say where the feelings come from. Sometimes I think it probably is God. Sometimes it's that you're, you know, you're 20 years old and, and, yeah. and whatever, there's like all the cute. Sometimes it's the crowd. There's this, yeah, mm-hmm. it's the crowd. There's this song you're singing with the guys and the girls echoing and the yep. girls just sound super cute singing their part and whatever. Like, you know, there's all kinds of things going into this. Yeah, I, I, I remember um, there's this story about Rich Mullins where someone came up to him after the concert and, and said, oh, I was listening to this song and, and there's just this moment when I could just feel the Holy Spirit come in. And he was like, oh, what? what part what song was it and what part and and this person told him and he said oh yeah that's where the bass comes in yeah. and yeah <laughs> I, I don't know if it's true that, but I, no, i've I, talked I, to rich Mullins. that sounds exactly like okay well and and there's something that uh, as as someone who who i mean i prefer the term music director because i think when you say like worship leader that that just silos it too much i think worship as you were saying before is a much larger more concept music? yes thank you more than music um but there, there is part where when, when you lead music and in, in my experience was evangelical church, like worship services, you can elicit feelings through particular ways of playing, particular emphasis. First verse, and, first bridge. And verse so there was part bridge. where there, there were times where I certainly there were certain things that I, I refused to do because I was like, no, that, that feels a little manipulative because it feels like I'm trying to force a manufacturing of an experience as opposed to that actual interaction. And so I feel like there, there are ways in which in, in evangelical expressions of quote unquote, like worship music that, that I've experienced where I, I question whether there's the transcendent or or whether it's just I might get caught up in how the song is is composed and and produced and and delivered to me, um, and so the, there there is part where yeah I, I think from an evangelical background that I that I have the transcendent is always a little bit of like it, it, it really kind of trying to connect with that feels a little mystical. And that mm. was a little scary in my mm. in my upbringing, mm-hmm. um, 
because the the mystical had ambiguity to it that that my faith tradition was rather uncomfortable with and so the transcendent was was a bit of a tricky thing for me to kind of be open really to. well yeah be open to to um to really connect with in in my life as the church it was kind of taught like there there was as you talk about like kind of like eternal concepts where you talk about like afterlife or you you talk about that god exists outside of time there was some of those sorts of things but like i know that sometimes my my church kind of pushed away from a lot of those like heart like non-empirical kind of experiences um and and so it it's for me been interesting kind of relearning and re-experiencing that and trying to uh, come to terms with becoming more comfortable with a level of kind of mystery or mm. mysticism. Mm. It, it's still a little odd for me. <laughs> Transcendence and imminence are often thought of as two distinct categories. Mm. But there's another way of thinking about it. Uh, where the transcendent is uh, the concept we use to try and uh, get a handle on our stance in the presence Mm -hmm. of what is. So we can be the captives of what is unfolding in front of us. We can we can presume about its meaning. The notion of the transcendent is one of a stance of not presuming about its meaning, mm. of seeking to, to hold what addresses us with a certain amount of attentiveness but not presuming about it hmm. so that its fullness can un- unfold for us. So we also, of course, in, in Christian thought and narrative in the gospel, speak about transfiguration, hmm. how to see the figure of the world from a perspective which is not bound by our presumptions about that figure which, in other words, which is open to the unfolding, to the becoming of things as the assumption that they are. But there's another aspect of this issue of worship that you, you, you talked about a little bit that I'd like to just probe a touch. And that is, um, you talked about finding the appropriate things to say to God. What does worship have to do with listening? Yeah, I think worship. I think I think worship should include listening, and I probably should have. I probably should have mentioned that earlier. Um, well, we can't say everything at the same time. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think I think that's a really important part of of worship is is listening, and um, and I guess I I think that's an aspect of worship that that I've sort of been learning learning more or at a deeper level or something in in my own life recently and just um 
just as I, I kind of realized that I, as an individual in my church, as an individual church, is too small to do everything that God wants to do in the world. And, and so, um, and so I think that, I think that in that sense, I've, I've, I've felt, um, the need to, to listen more, to, to take longer to pray before I make plans about what our church should or shouldn't be doing, to pray, wait for God to bring opportunities and, and try to follow his leading as, as well as we can. Um, both at a personal and, and at a church level, I think, I think it's really important. Yeah. One of the things that has struck me, I've, I've worshiped in the Orthodox church now for, you know, I suppose half my life. One of the, th- but I was raised in the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and the Evangelical Lutheran Church was a very evangelical and very free church in its ordering of things. You know, the idea of liturgy, the idea of vestments was very taboo. I mean, this was really papism of the first order. And that's why the Swedish Lutherans or the German Lutherans were really the worst kind of people because, you know, they wore, <laughs> they wore roughs and... And they, uh, you know, they probably were doing confessions. Probably. And they probably even thought that the wine and the bread um, changed species somehow or other. So, and there are wonderful things in that church, things that I really treasure. I mean, the, the focus on scripture is, wonder, is wonderful and marvelous. And I mean, I grew up between the leather covers of the Bible um, and most often there was there was room to breathe, nevertheless. So um, so I treasure that. I'm not in any way critical of it. Again, I, I, I think I've come to view it as as a particular charism within the within the the Christian family. So the liturgy, the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom, going all the way back to a baptismal prayers in Jerusalem which became so central to, to much of the church, um, both the Eastern church, the Greek church, and its, and its children, and the Latin church. We have, you know, we have a half a dozen of the ancient liturgies, all of which are still alive, all of which are still prayed every day, right now, somewhere in the world. People are praying those liturgies. So there's a few things about it which are, which are kind of curious to me, and I just I don't want to spend much time on this, but just to, to, uh, to hear how you respond. The first thing is that the whole of the liturgy, I remember when I first realized this, how stunned I was, because for my father, Lutherans, we're the guardians of the Bible. <laughs> right. Like we have the Bible. Yeah. Other churches play fast and loose, but we have the Bible. Yeah. And I went to a cycle of services in an Orthodox church very early on around Holy Week. Mm. And uh, the first service, of course, was like four hours long. And it was <laughs> about late right. at night, and I was driving home. The Northern lights were flashing, mm-hmm. and I began to laugh. What would my father have made of it? <laughs> <laughs> because we thought we had the scripture. Mm-hmm. There I was for four hours with a bunch of peasants, mm. 
and there wasn't one word which wasn't the scripture. Mm. But it was all prayed. Mm. It was all prayed. Mm-hmm. So from, from the perspective of this wing of the church, the scripture is first and foremost prayer. Mm. And prayer is first and foremost the clearing of the mind and the heart so you can hear. Mm. It's Jewish. It's like Jesus' world, Jesus' mm. prayer. Because what's the Jewish creed? Hear, O Israel, mm. the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mm-hmm. To hear. So when we pray the scripture, we pray to hear. And also these liturgies, of course, are for devout people. They don't read them. They take them in with their mother's milk. Hmm. And so it's like many of the great religious traditions, uh, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Jews, uh, these things become part of you the rote part of it is absolutely essential mm-hmm. so that maybe at some point you hear. Mm. I mean, it's fascinating mm. with Judaism and Jewish worship because as you, as you no doubt know, in the Jewish synagogue, they never take out the Torah unless there are 10 present. Mm-hmm. They can't read the Torah unless there are 10 present. So this is a spiritual discipline. Why? Because the Torah is hot. Because there's a danger that you might think you understand it. And that will almost always be idolatry. You need to hear the way it sounds, the way it comes to mean in the lives of the ten people gathered or others gathered. There needs to be that dialogue about it, that cut and thrust, that tussle around it. You know, Jewish synagogue worship is always very loud and noisy, Mm -hmm. just like Jewish heaven. Mm. You know, the Jewish heaven is a great cacophony (laughs) because it's a debate all the time. You're standing there before Adonai, and you're really debating about Adonai, and Adonai is delighted. (laughs) So, well, uh, it just... It, it's it's just uh, interesting to me how uh, distinct the worship forms can be, and it seems to me that they're they're really cultivating different things. They're cultivating different aspects of the, of the spiritual life. And you spoke you spoke about uh, the missional vision, mm-hmm. which you had some reservations about. You Mm -hmm. see its value and its significance. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there is the need to care and to nurture Mm -hmm. the the body of Christ, the the gathered community. Can you you speak just a little bit about how, how your worship, what you see as the kind of nurturing that is giving that is giving to to the community? Yeah, I think uh, I think it comes in a couple ways. Um, I think 
some of it is is that I I hope that we can create and become a community at Hillside Church where where people just genuinely care for each other. Uh, you know, outside of Sunday morning, on Sunday mornings, and and that it can be. Um, yeah, just a caring, a caring community where, where people actually take the time to get to know each other, where they actually ask each other how they're doing, where they actually do something about it when someone's having a hard time, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so you will know them because they love one another. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, I think I think I also hope that that my preaching, uh, I kind of have a twofold aim. One is is that. Um, I want there to be something they can take away from each of my sermons that they can do each week. You know, I try not to be too, too specific because I think that gets pretty mm-hmm. reductionist. And, but I also want to, I also want to be forming a worldview. And I think that's, I think that that's, I don't know if that's maybe a, a Protestant way of trying to do what the liturgy I think does uh, of, of forming people over years because they, they're saying this liturgy over and over and over and it's, it seeps into them and, and shapes the way that they understand mm-hmm. what world they're living in. And I hope that by my preaching, I can do a little bit of that as well by, by giving them a new understanding of, of what the world is and who God is in the world and how the world works. And so it's not just them coming into the church with the worldview they inherited wherever at their workplace or whatever and and or from advertising agencies yeah for advertising agencies whatever and then and then singing a few songs and saying well that makes me a christian but actually changing so that they see the world jesus's way um that's one one way of nurturing i think um well i guess those are those are the yeah. two that i'd start so, with so say a little bit about the way jesus sees the world well i think he sees it as um as something that he loves uh I mean, I keep talking about John, but I You're like John there, a lot. Yeah. We're in there now. I wrote, I wrote my my thesis on it, and um, but I think it's a beautiful book. Well, John it's, belongs to the Orthodox Church. You know. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> got to be fair. Yeah, you, you may be appropriating here. That's right. <laughs> I'm not sure we're going to let you have it. That's right. Okay. 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 Uh, but yeah, I just I just love the way you know, especially in the prologue, it it just yeah. it shows this idea of of God he creates this world and the world is lost in darkness and so he sends the light and the life to the world and and so I think that that's how Jesus sees the world I think he sees uh, you know as we as we learn at his um, his final conversation with his disciples uh, in John he, he sees his disciples as his friends because they've believed him because they've kept his commands and um, and I think the rest of the world he sees as as lost in darkness, but not in a in a in a critical or in, or vindictive sense in any in any way, but in a in a in a sense of you know I don't know maybe as a a parent would see a child who's kind of gone astray or something you know you you love these people and you you want to bring them into the light but but and you began be beautifully speaking about caring, mm. so he cares yeah yeah and he seeks the healing yeah. I mean, if you were to take the healing narratives out of the Gospels, yeah, how much would you have left? Not yeah, much. Very, very little. Yeah. So that healing is is so central there. Mm. And the prologue in John, I often think of that as a midrash on Genesis one. Yeah, I agree. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's another telling mm-hmm. yeah. of that Genesis narrative. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah.
Do you find one of the things we've talked about with a number of people that we've been in conversation with is this particular moment? Uh, we've been asking the question, is there a crisis in the church? Was there a crisis pre-COVID and then the, in the particularity of time and, and you know, culture? Uh, we were talking before we started recording about, you know, having opened up again for in-person services and how many people are coming back and what are different churches experiencing. What do you think about this particular moment and what it might mean for the church? Yeah, I think uh, I don't love this moment in the church, mm. to, <laughs> to be quite frank, but um, but there's been a lot of moments in, in church history. I'm no expert, but I've taken enough church history yeah. to know that there's a lot of moments in church history that I don't really like. And and here we still are, and I, th- I think I have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, relationship with him, and I think all of us here at this table do. And so, and so I think that, um, I think I take, I take heart because of Mm -hmm. that. Um, and so, uh, so I don't know what the way forward is. I don't know what the way out of it is. You do see some difficulty and uncertainty right now. Oh yeah. You you experienced that on the ground level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in my own church, there's, there's, uh, our congregation smaller than it was before COVID. Uh, we've, we had some people leave for other churches. We've had, some people just leave. We've had some new people come. And so, you know, it's just a total mixed bag right now. A lot of people are feeling like my own kids are, are just having a hard time emotionally because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that. I think that, I think that right now the culture of North America in general and, and including the church is just a culture of everybody yelling and everybody trying to reform everybody else mm-hmm. and tell everybody else how they're not woke <laughs> enough about this or that or the other thing. And, and I just found out, I didn't know, apparently deconstructing is now like a thing we talk about in the church and mm-hmm. everybody's deconstructing their faith. And then the other people mm-hmm. who aren't are criticizing them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I don't know if it's like the new secular humanism mm-hmm. that they talked about when I was a kid or whatever, but um, it's a, it's so a, much. yeah, it's just a loud, loud environment. And, and I, you got to have church on Sunday. Yeah. And then you got to yeah. have church on Sunday. And I, I just thought, you know, uh, uh, it's just so frustrating to me because I feel like so much of what people are uh, leaving the church about is like a, a truncated reductionistic view of Christianity. And, and there's, they're noticing things about that, that so many thinking Christians have noticed throughout time, you know, like, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like, why didn't you, why didn't you read N.T. Wright? Yeah. Why didn't you read C.S. Lewis? Why didn't you read like any of the, like the people who are writing thoughtful books in history? And, and, you know, you can go straight back through the church. You got Bernard of Clairvaux, like doing these, these, uh, and needed, uh, I guess reformation is too strong a word. What do you call it? A rejuvenation of the church or something. And, 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 and you've got, I don't know the Orthodox history as well, but I'm sure there's all that sort of stuff going on in the Orthodox Church too. And no, it's been stable and pure. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right. That's, that's right. right. You're clear uh-huh. clear yeah. eyes. You're right. right. to celebrate the stability. <laughs> yeah, right from the In the, the local communities. Yeah. Yeah. From the no, very beginning all the way through. No murmurs yeah. at all. Yeah, so it does worry me, but I, but, but I, th- I, f- but this I is where you're think working. this is where I'm working, this and I think the passing. solution is what the solution has always been to... to Remain in the vine, in the words of of John fifteen, and and I think that's the only thing that's ever saved the church from anything is is um, hmm. people remaining in the vine, and and of course they're always imperfect people, and there's good good with the bad uh, bad with the good whenever there's a kind of a renewal movement, but um, I think that's what we need to do, and and I don't know, I feel like what we don't need right now is a, a reformer, 
Like everybody thinks he or she's a reformer right now. And that I feel like is so much of the problem. We need some, maybe some quiet people just mm. living out their faith yeah, in, interesting. in a small circle of people. That's very nice. You know, deconstruction has dominated the university and the humanities where I've taught for virtually all my teaching career. And so in religious studies in universities across Canada, my generation of uh, the professoriate, the vast majority of them, instead of going and spending a lot of time in therapy to come to terms with their fathers, their evangelical fathers, they went and got PhDs in religious studies <laughs> and then spent all their time deconstructing. Yeah. So they did that, and the first 20 years of doing that, it was meaningful to do because the students actually knew something about what they were deconstructing. The next 20 years, it became very peculiar because they kept deconstructing, but the students had no idea what they were deconstructing Mm. because they'd never (laughs) been taught, they'd never been given the structure. They knew nothing about it. So the last 20 years, the jig is up. It's become obvious. So... The challenge here, given what you've said, is does one react to the deconstructing impulses or do you take it upon yourself to send those roots deeper down Mm -hmm. and pull up the deeper sources of the faith Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and of the life of the Christian community is that where the antidote is? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's and I think you're very right about being suspicious of reform movements at this mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. because this is a but this is a delicate moment, mm-hmm. and reform movements uh, will will certainly change things, but the chances are probably likely that most people that join those movements will do so as a slide out of the tradition mm-hmm. and out of the church mm-hmm. into, I think, a more barren world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting too. Uh, and I know like Nate, the I just keep going back to, and then there's Sunday again. So what's today? Today in our, as we're speaking, Wednesday. Wednesday. And the punctuation of, of your calendar and time in the church. Like when I was pastor at a church, like I, I used to joke like it, it always seemed like it was Saturday night. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, so there are these bigger things that, that are in our minds, our prayers, our thoughts, and then, oh, here we go again. And that's, I guess, that can be experienced as a, a difficulty, uh, as a kind of a burden, but it's also the gift, right? That, mm-hmm. Okay, the mm-hmm. community's gathering again, mm-hmm. and we don't know how many people are there after mm-hmm. COVID, and we've mm-hmm. got to have a camera mm-hmm. and, you know, allow people to watch online or be part of this online and now it's hybrid and now it's uh so the the kinds of challenges that pastors and ministers and leaders were facing before covid um what you're sharing with us is those things have been you know they've become more intense and then there's been some new ones and and here you are ministering so it's part of the reason we want to have this conversation with people who are doing this week in week out Um, in these communities, in these places where people are going from church to church at times because of worship or yeah. what they're defining as worship. Yeah. 
um, and then and, and where you're working and what you're called to do each week. So thank you so much yeah, for joining welcome. us. Thanks for having um, me. For having these conversations. Um, we'll keep you posted on how we bring it all together and, and the kinds of questions that we raise. But um, but keep at it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, so thanks Le- you guys. Bless you in your work. Thank yeah, you. Amen. Thank you. Rector's Cupboard releases a new episode every other Friday. The podcast is a production of Reflector Project. Hosts are Todd Weeb and Allison Williams. Cupboard master for tastings and locations is Ken Bell. Production and social media by Amanda Miner. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.